Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and help to improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch Integrated Security and Communication Solutions span Zones 1 through 4 in the LPRC's Zones of Influence, while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Um, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Um, excited to talk again. Really, this is our this is a redux in a way, um, the, sep- the second uh, version um, of uh, Dr. Nolan Scaife of the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, uh, Nolan uh, and I go back um, two, three years uh, while he was uh, doing some graduate work at the University of Florida, uh, in other words, getting his PhD. Um, but he's a cybersecurity um, uh, expert um, and we've really relied on his expertise and uh, some of uh, the other members of that time of FIX, including uh, uh, Patrick Trainer uh, and Kevin to name two. But um, what we thought we'd do, Nolan, is tap into your experts, expertise uh, on um, just an ever-present and presumably growing problem out there with cybersecurity. Um, so, Nolan, welcome. First of all, let me say welcome to you. Thanks. It's it's great to be back, Reed. All right. So Noel and I were just chatting before we started the uh, the on air recording, if you will, about um, 2020, the year that um, many of us, if not everybody, will hopefully want to forget. But um, you know, talking about now forest fires on top of everything else that we've been experiencing, and just the sheer number. And and in the state of Florida, we've had some very serious ones in the past, but knock on wood right now, but for some reason not participating in the current one. And it's probably because we're having torrential rains all day, every day. Um, so Nolan, let's talk a little bit, if we could, about um, what you're working on um, at University of Colorado in your area. What, what's what's some of your focal points that you're allowed to share with us uh, at Crime Science? Sure. So we, um, so I have uh, some students that are working with me on a project to um, to better test ransomware detectors. And I think uh, I think last time I was on here, Reed, we talked a little bit about uh, the ransomware problem. And this really started from, you know, in the academic literature now, there are hundreds of papers about um, ransomware. And of course, this is, this is an attack where, uh, if you haven't heard of it, uh, an attacker runs some software on a computer and, uh, it goes through and it encrypts the files in a way that the only way to recover from those files is to pay the ransom. So in this way, it's, it's kind of an extortion attack. And, um, you know, so we've, we, we did some, uh, some work on ransomware uh, while I was at University of Florida. Uh, I guess it's probably been five years or so ago now. And in fact, that was one of um and that was one of University of Florida's first uh, startup companies, CryptoDrop, uh, for for security. And um, you know, in the meantime, I've seen this problem continue to grow. You know, it's grown in some sense from uh, just a crime of opportunity to uh, more of a targeted attack. And so you're seeing, you know, these big companies uh, and even 
um, government agencies, the city of Atlanta, Garmin, and so forth, that have been in the in the news recently, get hit by these and get um, you know extorted for for millions of dollars. And um, you know, we were curious why you know why if there's been all this work that's been going in. Uh, to research and ransomware. Why does this continue to be a problem? It seems like we're 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 getting a pretty good handle on this attack and and the kinds of ways to stop it. So um, the the students and I uh, here at um, CU Boulder uh, have been working on a way to to better evaluate these uh, these these detectors, if you will, to try and figure out where are the gaps in and our coverage um, to, to maybe in the, uh, hopefully in the future be able to build a better detector. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, and uh, you know we continue to work on um, different areas of, of what I would call consumer protection. So we have a project going for working on um, thinking about home networks and how you know, when we're bringing these IoT devices into our home, how can we have better guarantees of um, better guarantees that devices are doing what they say they're going to do on the package? Um, so that's a, and that's another project that we're working on. Um, hopefully, that answers your question, Reed. No, that that's fantastic. And I thought if we could um, maybe start with ransomware um, and dig a little deeper and. Um, you know, we all, I can sense in your voice and I can read that in the literature, even that, uh, while ransomware continues to be a very serious issue for some organizations, including, uh, law enforcement agencies, um, city municipal governments, we know, uh, have been shut down and, um, and so on, but yet yourself and others in the uh, cybersecurity realm are, are saying, wait a minute, I think we've got some good tools. We can get better. We are getting better. Um, but maybe tell us a little bit more about what's going on with ransomware, Nolan. Um, why is this so difficult? And are there some things that we should be looking at in our behavior as well as the tools that we might use? So the, the ransomware problem is a particularly challenging one for security researchers because this is a behavior uh, encrypting your own files that a user might do themselves. So, you know, unlike a lot of other malware um, that's trying to perhaps exfiltrate data um, or other kinds of attacks, this this is a, a somewhat benign looking activity in a lot of cases. So, you know, if you think about having data on your own laptop, for example, uh, you might choose to encrypt that data. Uh, to either email it out uh, safely or maybe to just protect it on your disk. And really, there's not much of a fundamental difference between what ransomware is doing and you doing that to your own data, which makes it difficult to, to decide. Um, you know, if, you're, if, if I say I'm going to write a program uh, to detect this type of attack, for example, um, it makes it difficult because I can't necessarily determine the intent of the action that's happening uh, on the machine. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
there's a lot of belief, I think, that, that circles around. And you can see this if you look, you know, when there are, uh, when there are, are uh, these types of attacks uh, in the media, for example, with, uh, uh, not to pick on Garmin, but the, the Garmin attack um, that happened uh, just a few weeks ago, that, well, you should have had better backups, for example. You should have had a better recovery plan. Um, and, and, and the challenge with those, the challenge with those types of, um, with those types of criticisms is that even if you have a backup, I mean, if, if you think about, um, you know, a large scale organization, like what I think probably, uh, your, your listeners here, uh, are in that, Having a backup, having that copy of that data and actually being able to restore it and do a full disaster recovery when you're attacked on a scale like, say, Garmin it was, uh, is really challenging uh, and time-consuming and expensive to do. And so what we're seeing is that the ransomware market, in some sense, uh, is able to bear the costs of the uh, of these ransoms. So you know, if if you're a large company and you get hit with one of these large scale attacks, and the ransom demand is ten million dollars, uh, we're starting to see companies really seriously consider uh, and even paying those ransoms um, because that cost is less than the cost of either, either they don't have, you know, the ability to recover or the cost of recovery is, is substantially more expensive than the ransom. Interesting. So I thought we could talk a little bit about um, social engineering and uh, in, in asset protection loss prevention. Um, it's been a topic and an issue and it's been tackled to a certain extent over the years, but it, it seems um more important than ever. And that seems you're alluding a little bit to social engineering. Um, we know we've long had people calling the stores and, and saying or doing certain things and setting up scenarios. Um, but there's been a few, and I thought we could uh, run through these a little bit where um, some of the ways it might lead to ransomware that might lead to other cyber issues. And maybe you as the doc, if you will, could talk to us about it. But you know, an example are with when a, when customers email customer service or to the uh, the retailer's corporate office or an outsourced place location or even to the store sometimes, um, and they are they include a downloadable file that's their receipt uh, or proof of purchase. They've scanned it with their phone or a, um, a printer or something like that. Um, any thoughts around that type of social engineering a way to, is there anything we can do to scan or lock down or validate? I'm not sure. Just a question though. So a lot of systems, um, uh, especially large enterprise systems that accept, um, that accept uh, uh, unsolicited user input uh, um, or not unsolicited um, that accept uh, unfiltered user content. So for example, like you said, uh, a customer service portal where somebody can upload a file uh, and that file might be a receipt or a screenshot or a copy of an email or, or something like that. Um, a lot of these systems have, um, have the capability to perform basic virus scanning um, or the ability to limit certain types of 
files from being uploaded. But this, this really isn't a panacea uh, for the ransomware attack, especially for a targeted attack. A lot of these systems are designed to detect uh, malicious content that's been seen before. So for example, if I were to upload, you know, a piece of uh, ransomware that's infected, you know, thousands of other people, uh, then maybe your system would would catch that and stop it. The real challenge comes in uh, comes when I want to target your your environment, and so I'm going to make sure that I send something in that I know nobody, your vendors, your employees, nobody has seen this before. And so these kinds of uh, uh, heuristic-based checks for malware um, uh, are are likely to not pick it up. And so, you know, what you want to make sure that you have is that. You know, if, if you need a customer, for example, to upload a uh, PDF, then your system should only allow PDF uploads, for example. And then when that gets to, um, you know, when that gets to your, to your employee who's going to view that, um, it might, uh, one way to do this might be to, to change that into a different format, like change it into a picture instead of a PDF uh, programmatically. So that what they're viewing is not this executable content um, that might lead to something like a ransomware attack. But in general, um, you know, this is the kind of thing where um, your developers for these types of applications should be in close contact with your security, uh, with your security teams to make sure that you know there isn't this this path between, um, for example, um, the general public and an employee system where there's not a series of, of checks and access controls and so forth uh, to prevent um, unknown malicious content from getting in. Okay, interesting. Another that uh, has been reported is um, uh, employees finding an, a USB drive, you know, on the floor in the restroom. Um, under a display fixture or in a fitting or dressing room. Um, any thoughts there? And then of course say, oh, we need to find out who's this, what's on this or who does this belong to so we can return it. Any thoughts on that type of attack? This is actually, this is interestingly read, this is um, uh, solvable in some sense at, at both the technical and the behavioral level. So now obviously you want to tell your employees don't plug in USB drives that you find, um, uh, but also you can take action on the technical side to make sure that, for example, there are products that will say uh, only a particular brand or serial number or um, type of USB drive can be connected uh, to our systems, or you can just block them altogether. So there are those access controls on the technical side. Um, Interestingly, uh, to read, there's a there's a, a great academic paper um, out of the University of Illinois. I think it's called um, "Yes, Users Really Do Plug in USB Drives They Find," uh, where they did this um, they did this campus based um, uh, study where they would drop USB drives across the campus and then track uh, how and and when they got plugged in. Uh, and it turns out that you know people really do do this, um, and so it it's a it's a behavioral thing to teach to teach employees and and customers and and everybody that 
you know, just because you find it doesn't mean it's safe to use. Interesting. And, you know, it's uh, sort of topical right now, but uh, we're all aware, or most of us, that um, people across the United States and perhaps other countries began receiving these mysterious seeds in packets that were mailed to us, uh, presumably from China, according to the return address and other, the the postage and other indicators. Um, and And local, county, state, federal government, uh, media started warning and putting up, but still hundreds of individuals eminently went and planted those seeds, not knowing if it was invasive speech, not knowing anything. And so it's interesting, like you say, human behavior. So Yeah, I think um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, of curiosity that goes into it, um, whether that's a letter or a package um, or a USB drive, but you find something and and you think that it is, you think it might have something interesting or fun um, in it, and so you you kind of naturally are just curious about what what this thing might contain, um, without thinking that perhaps this is an adversarial environment that you're in. Interesting. What about uh, this idea? I know that uh, Chipotle and others have have experienced breaches and maybe ransomware attacks. Um, uh, credential stuffing or using stolen names and passwords. But part of the idea is that if you get somebody's name and a password that we all know we should have unique passwords for each site and keep them up to date and they should be actually good passwords. Any thoughts around this idea of credential stuffing and preventing that? This is a, it's a pretty pervasive problem. And on the part of, on the part of the company that is, um, that's running the service that's having credentials stuffed into it. There's very little that you can, uh, very little that you can conceivably do about that. In some sense, read it's a lot like the the ransomware attack, where this is something you know a user trying a handful of passwords on a legitimate account is something that you might, you know, conceivably do as a user. Um, the real challenge here, I, in my opinion, is is the behavioral aspect of using a different password at um, uh, at each site that you go to. And the challenge, of course, there is that, you know, we talk about, okay, you should have these, you know, security people, we say you should have these really long passwords that have letters and numbers and, and symbols and capital letters and, um, and they should, um, and you should use a totally different one for each, uh, for each site that you go to. The challenge with this is that in order to do that, you need some, you'll have to have some sort of password manager or some sort of system to manage those. Um, now, for uh, for the general public, there are a handful of really great ones. I, I wouldn't say that they're uh, always the simplest to to use. Um, sometimes they fail in interesting and mysterious ways, and you kind of have to take over. Um, but, you know, what I've found is that in my industry experience over, you know, many years of working in industry is that one of the things that's overlooked is, um, the ability for the enterprise to give that to the employees, to offer a system and training to use that system to have, uh, unique passwords at different sites or to securely share a password for a shared account, um, than, you know, for an internal application or something like that. Um, 
long term, I think uh, I think we may move further and further away from passwords. And you already see this uh, you know, on mobile devices with, for example, face recognition, fingerprint scanners, those kinds of things. Where that hasn't really quite made the leap yet is in desktop platforms. Um, but I think we're inching ever closer to that every day. Very good. Um, I know we hear about uh, near field, near field communication, you know, NFC and, you know, cell phones and card readers, price scanners, um, you know, and that, and that someone can scan a QR code and maybe gain access to an exclusive app. But um, there's evidently some risk here, corruption and modification, eavesdropping. Any, any thoughts, uh, Nolan, on NFC, what it is, um, what we could maybe do about it as a retailer? I think, you know, as a consumer uh, and as a, a security expert, I think one thing that's overlooked um, is this idea that we're kind of implicitly training people to point their cameras at things. You know, take a picture of this, scan this QR code, tap your phone here. And, and today, the majority of those cases are benign. You know, if you go into a store and you scan a code or you tap your phone or you take a picture of something, it's not it's going to be, you know, a benign experience for the user. Um, but once people are comfortable doing that, it'll be, in my opinion, relatively straightforward to start, you know, putting up QR codes that link to malicious content or uh, NFC scanners that, um that do a, a, a different thing than what, uh, what it would appear that it does. For example, a, a fake payment terminal or something like that. Uh, and once we're kind of used to just working through uh, that workflow on benign applications, I think what we'll start to see is malicious use of that increase. And so, you know, I would encourage um, uh, folks that are, um, that are out there considering uh, how do we how do we bolster our engagement with customers? Can we have them take a picture, or scan a QR code, or tap their phone to really think about um, whether or not they've put the tools in place for the customer to be able to identify if this is a legitimate or a fraudulent situation? Good insights. I appreciate that. Um, you know, another thing that we know back in 2013, Target had a horrific breach. Um, I understand the, the terminology, the attack type was RAM, um, you know, RAM scraping and so forth. What, anything about that we should know about uh, that type of POS or card transaction uh, interface um, in, the, in, in this type of RAM scraping attack? Nolan. Yeah, so, so this type of, you know, this type of payment malware uh, works by, you know, the workflow is sort of, approximated by this. Um, you swipe your credit card or um, or, in some, or or put a payment in, a gift card, something like that. The terminal will read that and then it's stored briefly in the point of sale unit's memory uh, while it's being uh, processed. So you can imagine that processing being, okay, I need to package it up and send it to a payment processor or something like that. And what this malware will do is it will just constantly sit there and check the memory of the machine 
to see if it contains a valid credit card number or gift card number or something like that. And then when it does, it pulls it out and it stores it. Now, you know, there's a probability that any sequence of uh, 16 digits will appear to be a, a valid credit card number. So the attackers don't really worry about whether it's valid at that time. Uh, they can test them later. And so, you know, the fix for this um, is, and you see this now in payment terminal technology, you know, the terminal will encrypt the card number so that the point of sale machine, for example, does not ever see or is able to store that number. Um, so you see, you see techniques um, uh, improving on the point of sale side for doing that. I think one thing, one thing we don't talk about um, particularly often, and, and I understand that the, the rationale for this uh, is uh, development ease, uh, cost of equipment, and so forth. But one thing I, I think is worth thinking about is in a lot of cases, point of sale equipment in a, in a store or retail environment uh, is a general purpose computer that is able to do uh, lots of things. It's just that the code that's currently running on it is point of sale code. And with that comes all the same challenges that are there with securing a desktop or a laptop computer. It's a general purpose operating system that can do lots of different functions. And so I think um, in some sense, this is an artifact of um, low cost computing equipment that's able to be used for, or low cost general purpose computing equipment that's able to be used for a lot of different tasks. And we have just loaded software on it to do one particular thing. Um, and I, I think that there's some value in exploring if you're, you know, if you're a merchant uh, and you're working with, you know, um, or, or a technologist that's working in, in, in retail, that it's worth thinking about how can we reduce the, um, the surface area for attack on, for example, point of sale machines by thinking about, can we build a machine that is uh, primarily a point of sale machine uh, and doesn't have the capability or the capacity to do extra things like scrape the memory and so forth. Now, this isn't a panacea for all types of problems, but I do think uh, that as you know, computing has been um, widely deployed in these organizations, that it's worth thinking about um, how do we build machines that are more purpose-built uh, which reduces that attack surface area. Uh, great insights. Let me ask you this, Nolan, a little bit about um, um, online, uh, I guess we should call it web skimming, um, that uh, is a, a problem for us consumers, but also, uh, as you know, most of our retailers uh, have e-commerce sites, um, uh, and we work with some that that's all they have. But um, anything about web skimmers, um, and I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing this right. Is it Magecart or Magecart? Magecart? Yeah, Magecart. Um, it's a Magecart is a, a, a particular skimmer that was uh, targeted. Um, I, not not certain if it's still solely targeted to that, but was for the Magento shopping cart system. Uh, and the idea here is that 
an attacker somehow gets the ability to control what's on the website. Now that might mean that they compromised a um, compromised your web servers to be able to you know add this code, or maybe they compromised one of your partners. Uh, for example, if you use a third party, if you load third party code on your website, uh, and in any case, they get the the customer's browser essentially to load your shopping cart page and load an additional piece of code, which is the malware. Uh, and so when the customer types in their credit card number and clicks submit, this extra code also runs. And so in addition to actually successfully uh, checking out on your website, the attacker also gets to siphon off that credit card data. So that's that's kind of the web the web skimming problem, and uh, this is um, this is something that um, we've been looking at. Something that is interesting to us um, in how to detect this. So, in some sense, when we think about um, when we think about what this uh, or how to detect this, you might say, "Well, I don't want." you know, third party code to load on my site. But in the vast majority of cases, that's not possible. For one reason or another, there is third party code that loads that makes the widgets look just right or performs a certain kind of check on the customer's machine. Uh, and so you, you typically you find that websites want that functionality. So the question for us as researchers, and, and I don't have the answer to this yet, um, this is you know why we call it research, right? Uh, is how do we how do we detect when the credit card data is um, being used in an unauthorized way? And what that looks like and how we detect that, I think are still open questions, um, but we're certainly interested in and how to resolve this over time. Fantastic. So I guess what well, let's kind of on these attacks, let's start, let's stop uh, with this next one. And this is uh, one of the ways I got to know you and Patrick and your team uh, there. And that is around card readers, skimmers. Um, what's kind of the 101, a little bit about how these skimmers work. What, where do they put skimmers? Um, I guess, where do they put them? How do they work? Um, and what's going on to affect them? And uh, maybe is EMV actually preventative or not? So, yeah. So, so the, uh, the, the skimmer problem is one of terminal tampering. So the idea here is that someone is going to come into your store or into your bank or, or anywhere where there's a payment terminal or an ATM, and they're going to make some sort of modification to it. So what we've seen in the past are uh, skimmers that go over the top of the card slot. Uh, these are kind of independent um, embedded devices. They, they fit right over the, uh, the card acceptor or they will put something inside the card acceptor. In other words, um, this is a kind of a card shaped device that they can insert and, and press into the uh, card slot. But the, the, the general gist of it is the same. So what happens is a customer puts their card in, um, uh, whether it's EMV or a Magstripe, there is some mechanism on the skimmer that is going to either read the card or communicate with the card. 
uh, and this can give the um, this can give the attacker enough information to be able to make a fraudulent uh, payment or a fraudulent withdrawal from an ATM, for example. And um, yeah, so a, a couple of years ago, we worked with the NYPD, and since then, we've worked with um, like gosh, countless law enforcement agencies, retailers, banks, etc., uh, to work on this problem. Uh, and in fact, this was, uh, I talked a little bit about CryptoDrop, UF's first security startup. Um, now we have uh, Skim Reaper, which is our second, uh, UF's second uh, uh, security startup, which designs devices to check for skimmers. One of the challenges in this arena is that unless you catch somebody in the act of uh, installing one of these, which is very difficult to do on its own, um, uh, the difficult part is that a, a customer is almost never going to spot it. Um, so, and even trained, even trained eyes uh, like law uh, specialized law enforcement uh, officers and so forth uh, can have a hard time actually detecting these, especially if they're on the inside of the machine. You know, if I stick it into the front of the the card acceptor slot. So, what we've been trying to do uh, over the last couple of years is 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 bring to market and test and 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 deploy devices that help detect these uh, types of attacks electronically. So rather than you know measuring or eyeballing this problem, this is a device that can tell you definitively that there was something in the machine that did or did not attempt to you know read or communicate with the card that's in there. And so what the, the ultimate outcome for this, you know, for, for merchants, uh, it's loss of trust uh, that, you know, if consumer comes into your store and they get, and, you know, they, they believe that they got skimmed at your store and they're less likely to come back. Uh, and so what we've been, th this is the problem we've been trying to solve is how do we put these tools right in the hands of people? Uh, that can give you a more definitive answer of what the problem is. That's great. And I know that uh, you guys continue your research and um, the Skim Reaper's been pretty amazing. Uh, this, the, I understand there's some good activity around that uh, larger and larger purchases of the technology. It's just uh, the, the logic that you all applied and then the engineering you put into that and then the refinements you've made. And it, it's one of the, it's gotta be one of the most user friendly, um, uh, technologies I've ever seen. It's, so. it was a, it, thanks Reed. And it was a really, it was a really, uh, fun and interesting process to go through actually looking at skimmers and seeing how they work. Um, and then really getting down to the, the basic physics of how, these cards work. You know, I'm a I'm a computer scientist, but you know, when the when the work takes me into the field of magnetics and electrical engineering, uh, I get really excited about that because it doesn't happen very often in our field. And so, you know, when we when we got in there and we saw how these work, and we were able to build a detector that detects them in a way that, you know, we don't believe it's possible to evade without breaking the laws of physics. Um, that's a pretty exciting aspect of that technology. And so we took that and we wrapped it up in a, in a package that 
it's easy. It's easy to use. You basically turn it on and you press a button and then you swipe it like a credit card. Um, uh, and then it reports back instantly. Yes, this is okay. Or no, it has a problem. Uh, and that can, that can lead you to do, you know, further testing, go back. And, you know, if you're doing this kind of check regularly, then you have the ability to go back to your cameras and look to see, um, okay, well, it must have been installed between, you know, time X and time Y. And that can really give you a great picture of who's attacking you. I appreciate that. So let's do this. Um, let's go, Nolan, kind of finish up here. You've given us a tremendous amount of information on some of the more common and devious attacks that a retail company uh, might experience and helping the AP, LP, or law enforcement practitioner um, understand at, at, at the level that we need to at, at this point uh, about these problems and some possible fixes. Um, I'm really curious to understand, I'm, as you know, a criminologist, a social behavioral scientist, so I understand as much as I guess anybody can what uh, our field looks like, um, both in academia as well as um, companies that we work with, the government and the funding there and so on. Can you spend a couple minutes describing cybersecurity? Um, what disciplines do cybersecurity experts come from? What fields? Um, and what's that? What's it look like in the, from the academia side? Um, how you get science to practice? Um, of course, we have journals, we have conferences, uh, and then uh, we've got ways that we put that information out. Well, it's, it's largely the same way here, Reed. So we have conferences and we have security journals um, that we send uh, our academic publications to. And, and we've seen this increase of, um, we've seen this increase of non, traditionally non-security venues, for example, in distributed systems and operating systems and so forth, uh, that are now excited and willing uh, to take uh, security works. Um, it's been it's been my experience that, um, and, and it's my belief that you know outside of kind of the basic tenets of security, access control, and confidentiality and integrity, and, and these things that we want, these properties we want, the security as a whole is not really something that you build. You know, I can't go and make you a box of security, uh, and so it's a property that we seek in other systems. And so our community is really one of collaboration where we go in and we look at operating systems or payment systems or the map, you know, looking at malicious software. And we take to those areas, um, these, these practices that we have and this way of um, what I would call adversarial thinking, um, in in these other disciplines and that's what helps us make other disciplines uh, more secure or at least explore the problems of security uh, in those areas now from the from the aspect of where uh, security folks come from and their backgrounds uh, it's all over you know we find people that are interested in um, machine learning or data analytics um, uh, that are interested in security. People come to us from the law school, from the business school, from the School of Arts and Sciences here at, at CU that want to know more about security because these issues are 
not strictly, in my opinion, computer science issues. A lot of these issues are, are becoming more prevalent today, um, especially with regards to law and policy. Um, and, and so one of my goals has been to try and, and figure out how we can give security, how we can deliver quality content that, that gives people a security acumen that aren't necessarily from a security background. And, and the example I use, Reed, is that, you know, if you're working in finance at a company, um, you are not necessarily um, interested, perhaps, in becoming a security expert. In other words, you don't necessarily want to leave that job. You like finance. You want that career path. Um, but that's a very security-sensitive role. And so what we're trying to figure out how to do here is deliver the right content to uh, folks that are interested in having some security background. And so what I'm finding is that it's, it's coming from all backgrounds. It's not any one. Uh, and it's certainly not an only computer science. That's excellent. So, and I understand, you know, industrial systems engineers, electrical engineers, um, as well as, as you mentioned, computer science um, are involved in them. But I love the idea that social behavioral sciences and others um, uh, can all do that. And I've enjoyed working with you all and trying to look at it from the human back and forth uh, while you all are the technical people, but you certainly, you all also have to understand the human behavior around this and everything about around these attacks and uh, the countermeasures, the counter countermeasures and so forth. That's right. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that many technical solutions are not useful if they're not usable. Uh, and so, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, password managers and you know password managers are a great tool they're very um they're very good at keeping track of these really complex strings and 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 uh making them accessible to you but if they're if they're complicated to use if they don't always work um and and worse if you um if it adds friction to the experience um, whether that's using a computer or shopping at a store or whatever, um, people are going to naturally attempt to avoid it. And so we're always trying to, you know, our community is always trying to look at ways to make things frictionless, you know, to add these properties of security without fundamentally damaging the user experience. This has been excellent, um, and I know I appreciate your time, your expertise, um, and, and really your delivery, uh, Nolan. It's uh, you take very complicated, very complex issues, um, and you, you make them understandable for us that are lay people in this area. And uh, much appreciated. It's a it's a serious issue, and um, as you know, the asset protection, the LP people that we deal with, um, they've got a pretty broad uh, portfolio, and sometimes they're in charge of uh, cybersecurity or components of it, or, or their team uh, provides investigative support for the IT, the IS professionals that deal with it. Um, so thank you very much for that and your time. And I look forward to talking to you again. And, uh, you know, I ask, stay safe out there in Colorado, um, but it's certainly a beautiful area there in Boulder. Uh, and I got to go out there and, and tour before COVID hit and can't wait to get back out there.
Thank you so much, Rita. It was great to be on here. All right. Enjoy the rest of the week. And to the rest of you, thank you for listening to Crime Science, the podcast. And again, please stay safe out there. Uh, Any questions, comments, or suggestions for us uh, at the LPRC or our uh, UF research team, um, operations at LP Research is a great uh, way to communicate. And lpresearch.org is the website. Uh, So stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.